And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen won the Italian Grand Prix from 7th on the grid. But did Ferrari get it wrong strategically yet again? And should the way the race ended have been handled better, given it finished under the safety car? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell-Malm. Well, hello, Mark. It's been about an hour since I was last with you at Monza. We've now gone our separate ways to our hotels. Much been going on in that past hour as you were fighting your way out of the circuit traffic. No, most of that time was just sat in the exit of the car park, which is, um, for those who haven't visited Monza, the car park is a, a wood. And as you can imagine, it, there's, there's, there's only a few limited spaces in between the trees of a wood. So it's, it's, a, it's an unusual choice of, for a car park. But uh, yeah, we, we, we sat in it for quite some time behind the Arctics as the traffic sorted itself out. It's always a pleasure on a Grand Prix Sunday. And Scott Mitchell, you're watching from afar, but no less engaged in the, the race weekend. How have you found it? Yeah, um, it's been, uh, I think it was quite nice to um, have a little bit of a breather, having done the first couple of races of uh, of, of this triple header. I have to say the, uh, the atmosphere of Monza uh, is a bit less tangible from afar. Uh, it looked like um, it looked like a pretty raucous weekend with the with the Tifosi out in force, but um, I think it was uh, still fun. Uh, still, still a still a fun experience from home, and I have to say, what, working it from afar rather than in the media center meant I was able to uh, do one of my favourite things while um, while covering a Grand Prix weekend, which is follow a single driver every single lap of the way all through Saturday and Sunday, and that, that was Nick De Vries, obviously the last-minute stand-in. I'm sure we'll talk about him in a bit more detail later in the podcast, but that was that was one of the blessings of working from afar. I could really 
dig deep into his weekend and that that's just quite a fun experience where you can when when you can follow a driver every single lap see everything they get up to hear everything over the radio it gives you it's very immersive and it's difficult to do that when you're actually on site as you guys well know because you're just being pulled in about a million different directions and different inputs and whatnot yeah, well, I imagine we might speak a little bit about Nick DeVries on this podcast. I'm sure we can squeeze him in, seeing as he was something of a story this weekend. But let's dive into it. Scott, we'll start at the end of the race. That was the big talking point. Daniel Ricciardo parked up after losing oil pressure on lap 46. It was a 53-lap race, and yet the resulting safety car ran to the finish to the predictable howls of derision. You've taken a close look at exactly how this plays out. So can you just explain why it took so long, please? Yes, I need to make sure I don't mess this up because obviously normally the honour of the first question goes to Mark explaining how the race was won. And here I am about to explain why the race finished the, 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 the way it did. Um, yeah, Basically, in the, the, the simple version is that when, when Daniel Ricciardo's McLaren stopped, it, it looked like it would be a routine case of getting the car recovered. He, he It was dangerous in that the car was on track, but he, he pulled over a fairly sensible point of uh, recovery. But the problem is that it seems that the car got stuck in gear, so the marshals couldn't just roll it away effectively. Um, that immediately created a slightly more complicated recovery. Um, and from there, it, it kind of spiralled. The FIA and race control, who I do tend to pelt with abuse from time to time, I genuinely don't think they did anything wrong in this situation. I think it was just an unfortunate one and quite complicated because despite there have been a few claims to the contrary, which I don't think is fair, despite some claims, the, the safety car is not meant to be released into the path of the leader. In the regulations, it's really clear. It's, it's just that the safety car will be deployed when it's needed, regardless of where the leader is on track. That is in the regulation. So the safety car goes out when Verstappen's, I think, out of Lesmo 2. So he's halfway around the lap. Um, Charles Leclerc is, I think, entering Lesmo 1 or something like that. So it's actually the, the first of the leaders that comes behind the safety car is George Russell. To compound things further, Verstappen then pits at the end of his lap, which means he's even further in the safety car queue. So we end up in this situation where three things need to happen before the race can be resumed. The first is that regardless of the order they're in, Everybody needs to get behind the safety car in in a queue. The second thing is that these cars then the 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 cars between uh, the safety car and the leader need to be released, and then the lapsed cars need to overtake. And once they've done that, the safety car comes in at the end of the following lap. So there, there's a very defined procedure here, and unfortunately, with the way that this played out. The positions certain cars were in on track, the fact that they were sparsely spread out, the fact that the recovery of the car was complicated and therefore the the FIA needed to be extra safe and make sure that there were big gaps in traffic to be able to do the work, just stretched out this process from start to finish. And it, it meant that by the time Verstappen started his final lap, we weren't even in a position to release the lapped cars. The, the cars that were between the leader and the safety car had only bit, just been released and were barely catching up with the queue. So there just wasn't time for, for, for the race to resume. And there's no mechanism in the regulations for 
you know, arbitrary red flags to be to be thrown to to ensure a, a two lap sprint or a green flag finish. So while it was frustrating, and I do understand that, and I would like to see some changes to to avoid this in the future if we can. I don't think the way it played out was problematic. We were all screaming after Abu Dhabi last year for consistent, proper application of the rules. And honestly, honestly, I think that's what we got to today. Maybe I'm, but maybe I'm missing missing something. You two can fill me in if I am. <laughs> well, as always, we've got lots of questions from the race members club, and we've had a number on this issue. So there's a few we'll run through to add a little bit more detail or to address specific points scott i'll throw this one at you because you've 90 percent answered this but it's just worth stressing michael schlicker said why did the safety car collect russell you've explained that and why didn't it let him pass to pick up leader verstappen because you said they don't like gaps but what why don't they just cycle cars through until they do pick up the leader yeah so this this is the part that i think can can be questioned because this isn't explicitly outlined in the regulations but because basically what happens is that at some point the safety car will give the signal for the cars between it and the leader to overtake. And this is what Mercedes thought would happen initially because Russell was getting some confusing messages over the radio about to overtake the safety car, but he was like, the light's not green, I can't do it. The reason I understand this is the case is that when when there are trackside workers, safety is paramount. And the idea of the safety car in general is that you bunch all of the cars up in a single queue and that maximises the amount of time that the the track is empty and that the trackside workers can deal with a recovery or something without any cars going past. So I believe that's why they weren't just released until they were all in a queue because otherwise you would have just had a much more prolonged period of time where cars were sparsely populated around the circuit you know circulating at various intervals and and, and whatnot and I think that would have actually stretched the safety car period out even longer so that's not an explicit answer I did ask the FIA I didn't get a response Uh, unfortunately the FIA president's uh, mandate for transparency only kicks in when it suits them so I didn't really get the the answer I needed but that is what I understand the situation to be and it is actually what Mercedes boss Toto Wolff said was the case as well. That is why they didn't let anyone overtake. Yeah, the important thing to remember is this is a safety process, first and foremost. Mark, we'll bring you in now. Chris Partridge says, following precedent set at previous races, such as Baku last year, of course, there was a two-lap sprint after a red flag, should the race have been red flagged to allow a two- or three-lap sprint to the finish, rather than having the race finish under the safety car? It's, as Scott touched upon there, it's it's not... um, in the regulations that that is a, a procedure which automatically follows. So, but maybe it should be. Maybe if you get into a situation with a late race safety car and you realize quickly that the race cannot end under a green, uh, if you correctly apply the, reg- the safety car regulations, i.e. it does the extra lap after everybody's information, um, the, the thing that wasn't followed last year at Abu Dhabi. Um, if you get into that situation, maybe it should be in the regulations that the race director um, it would um, it would be conventional, let's say, uh, for him just to just call a red flag and yes, and have what we had in Baku. Um, but it's not it, it's not a it's not an obligation of the race director to, to do that. Um, and I think it was believed until too late uh, 
that uh, the, the the safety car procedure would allow it to uh, end live, but um, as it happened, it uh, the, the combination of how um, spaced out the the queue was and how slowly it was going, and and the other factor in this, of course, is that the Monza lap is very very long in terms of mileage, in terms of kilometers. Um, even though it's just, it's relatively short in terms of lap time because they're going so fast. But as soon as you slow the pace down a lot, it takes a hell of a long time to do a lap. Um, so that that was also a, a factor. And I think that they all just came together at an unfortunate time. But yeah, I, I think in principle, um, when you understand quickly that you're in a situation where you, you, you this is not going to play out um, as a live race at the end, um, it might be it might be time to incorporate into the rules that it's automatically a, a red flag and with the mention of Baku in the question of course Baku the crash was Max Verstappen when his tyre let go on the main straight one of the fastest points of any circuit in Formula 1 there was debris on the track so that was a red flag because it needed to be a red flag it just so happened that it was close to the end of the race so the need of the accident is the absolute defining factor at this stage which does connect us to the next question Scott Thomas Knights said does F1 need to find a better way of dealing with incidents at the end of the race finishing the race with six or seven safety car laps with a completely clear track at the end is a bit of an insult to crowds who have paid good money to come to the event so does this need to be improved or is it just one of those things? I think it can be improved and I think that's all that matters. If there is room to make it better, I don't see why why we're not looking at it. What what I found interesting after the race is that McLaren boss Andreas Seidel revealed that F1 and the FIA pushed the teams quite hard, apparently after Abu Dhabi last year, to find a solution to this to avoid safety car finishes. But Seidel says the teams couldn't agree. Not on, uh, at least couldn't agree on a solution that then had a sort of element of sporting fairness about it. So they agreed to keep the rules as they were. And I tried to push him on this. Uh, a couple of us did. He made reference to red flags, for example. Why why red flag in the race isn't, it's not as simple as that. But he, he wouldn't say why. And I, and I just found that quite frustrating because I think if, if you've explicitly discussed something that we're all saying now is a good idea, why are we not getting a reason for why that hasn't been implemented? And the the thing with the red flag is uh, any suspension of the race adds a, a, a big interruption. If you red flag that race, it's going to be 15, 20 minutes before we, we get the last lap or two of racing. And that's undesirable. So I've been thinking about this more and more. I wrote about it on on the website. You and I talked about it as well, Ed, after the race. Once we get into the final 5 or 10% of the Grand Prix, whatever it is, I think there should be an element of extra time that, that can kick in. Um, there are championships that, that do this. Formula E does it. British touring cars, you can add up to three laps uh, to the original race distance if you've spent time behind the safety car. I I don't see a reason, whether it's fuel-related or whatever, I don't see a reason why the right conditions couldn't be created so that one, two or three laps could be added at the end of a Grand Prix if there is a lengthy caution in the last 5% or 10% of the race or or, or something like that. Because often it's only those extra one or two laps that we need. So that would be my suggestion to to investigate. I don't know what the practicalities are that would, would stop that, but my point remains... I think there are ways to do this better, and I think F1 should make a, a bigger effort to to investigate those. I think the um, 
you touched on the reason why it can't happen at the moment, the practicality of it. He can't extend his, his simply fuel because the team's always fueled absolutely to the margin and then use what they've got absolutely to the last margin. And so if you suddenly say, let's do an extra three laps, you probably very, very few of them could. Um, but that's, as you say, there's probably ways around that in, in terms of how, how you set it up. Well, you can make them carry the reserve and then... If you get the three laps added, then you get a little bit more on your total fuel allowance, so you can make it that way. It's just a bit of extra ballast, but it does make the cars slightly heavier, but (laughs) the cars are pretty heavy already. Sean Murphy says, is there a case to be made to reduce the use of the safety car while conscious of the safety element involved and the fact that in this instance, Ricardo's car was partially on the road? Is there a need for a VSC or a safety car when a car has safely parked up off the road on a long straight and there's no debris on the track? Vettel's retirement today being such an example. Mark, should we just cut back on the use of the safety car? Uh, I don't think so, no, because there are always situations that um, could be unforeseen. Um, and, and I think when you're dealing with the safety of marshals, um, it's, it's got to be paramount. And I don't think we should be um, accentuating entertainment of uh, safety. Um, ideally, we can maintain the safety and improve the entertainment. We were both at Suzuka in 2014, but that springs to mind when it comes to this sort of thing. And that's one of the reasons why there's automatic safety cars and VSCs in certain conditions. So yeah, safety is absolutely paramount. But that doesn't mean you can't improve things while making sure the safety objectives are met. And that's what Formula One needs to talk about. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on now to the traditional question of how the race was won, Mark. Charles Leclerc started on pole position. Max Verstappen was down in seventh, thanks to his grid penalty. Then Leclerc ceded that lead by stopping for mediums on lap 12 under the VSC. That one was caused by Vettel. So was another strategic blunder at the heart of this defeat or something else? No, I'd say they did nothing wrong strategically. They just had a slower car in race conditions, certainly. They had a much higher deg rate on the front left, and that was essentially why they were going to get beaten. There was no way they were going to beat Verstappen. The pace deficit they had to him in the race. And both of Ferrari's attempts to do something different, bringing Leclerc in on the VSC and then making a second stop for softs, surrendered a lead that was about to be taken from them by Verstappen quite easily. So it was a virtual 100% certainty they were going to be beaten by doing a standard strategy, the same as that done by Verstappen, and maybe a 90% chance they'd get beaten by doing what they did. So it can't be called the wrong strategy. It was just uh, it was a slower car, and there was no right strategy to do. They didn't, they didn't mess up a strategy. They, they did a different strategy to try and pull something out that wasn't there on pure performance. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Strategy can help you do something sometimes, but if you've got a slower car, it can be very, very tricky. And there's there's an element to which they'd have been damned if you do, damned if you don't with that. They just said, well, why didn't you take this opportunity or whatever? So, yeah, just just one of those things. It was a shame the Ferrari wasn't a little bit stronger over, over a race stint. But, Scott, we should talk about Max Verstappen because it was another one of those weekends where we could be in danger of glossing over how good Verstappen's performance was. We barely mentioned him after his consummate Zandvoort win because there was so much else going on. 
So how much credit does he deserve for this? More credit than he got from the fans that were booing when um, when he came up for his uh, TV interview after the race and then on the podium. And I understand what Mattia Bonotto, the Ferrari team principal, was saying in that the Tifosi were just venting their frustrations at the FIA and the way that the, the race had finished and that Max was effectively the trigger for that rather than the target. But I don't know. Um, uh I, I don't I don't like that sort of thing anyway and Bonotto even said that the booing was booing was wrong especially when Max was the fastest driver I mean, Max was exemplary he had a mega mega first lap um he's getting so good like the few times now we see him out of position he he, he is getting really really good at judging you know when to risk it when to sort of play the percentages and he set himself up for victory on that opening lap yet again just like he did in Belgium when he when he started from from the midfield even further down than he did today, um, it, it's it's difficult to fault him really. Uh, I think um, it's a shame we didn't see the race play out as a straight fight between him and Leclerc with that early Ferrari pit stop um, under the VSC. Um, but I don't think uh, I don't think the outcome would have been any different. It felt like Verstappen and Red Bull were just in a class of their own. He does just execute these drives so well, doesn't he? Relentless. He doesn't make the mistakes. And although I've, I've started work on my driver ratings piece, which always runs on, on Monday, I'll be doing most of it once the podcast has, has finished. There's a lot of data to go through for that. But I, I, I have written the Verstappen entry and one of the elements of the verdict is that he wasn't unduly stretched by this because it was fairly easy to do. But I think it's one of those things that he makes it look easy by just doing everything correctly yeah he's got a fast car but he's the last three races what he started 10th 14th and 7th something like that and he's come through to win all of them that's that's complicating the races for him but he takes a potentially more complicated situation and makes it work really easily for him and that's just a hallmark of quality hallmark of quality Lewis Hamilton's done it in the past so it's just one of those things where you can't really applaud him enough it's just a little bit of a shame that the way he's doing it through no fault of his own, isn't offering you quite those grandstand moments that would throw his qualities in, into, into start relief. But yeah, absolutely outstanding. Mark, let's talk about a few of the quicker drivers coming through after penalties. Sainz was fourth from 18th on the grid, Hamilton fifth from 19th, and Sergio Perez sixth from 13th. Of course, they were among the nine drivers, I think it was, who had various forms of penalties. So can you explain how those three ended up in that order and and how that little separate race worked out? Yeah, Sainz was by far the fastest of that trio around Monza, and he was making progress immediately. And, and one of the early scalps was Perez, in fact. It was while racing with Sainz that Perez had a big lockup, which put a big flat spot on his front tyres, and it got the stage pretty quickly where the vibrations were reaching critical levels that the team was monitoring, and it was suggesting the onset of tyre failure. So that's why he was brought in on lap seven, which put him all at the back by a long way, as obviously the field hadn't spread out much by then. And he did, then did a very long stint on the hards. Um, he could have got the end on them, but he was being caught quickly enough by Hamilton on his much newer softs that they decided to stop Checo again, a surrender track position for his own set of softs, so as to have a chance of using their... Well, it would have been a nine-lap offset to repass the Mercedes, but the safety car brought that up short, and we didn't find out how it would have played out. He was certainly catching them at a, a quick rate, and uh, but he, 
you know, there, there, there weren't that many laps left, but it was it was going to be interesting. So that put Hamilton fifth and Perez sixth, uh, but Sainz was way quicker than either, and he could be much more aggressive in his pace. I mean, we could see that, you know, Leclerc couldn't be as aggressive in his how hard he pushed as Max could at the front, but if you're comparing him, the Ferrari to the Mercedes, or um, the... the the Red Bull of Perez rather than the Red Bull of Verstappen, um, he was just much quicker. And that, um, they kept him out longer than ideal before making a second stop and getting him onto softs, probably because they didn't want him to interfere with the Leclerc, who is also considering two-stopping. Um, but he was uh, lapping 1.3 to 1.5 seconds faster than Russell with seven laps to go from eight seconds behind. So again, that was said to be a very close battle. And we didn't find out how it would have been resolved because of the safety car. Yeah, Sainz said after the race that their prediction was they'd catch Russell on the last lap. So he was predicting a grandstand finish for that final podium slot, but certainly very, very quick. And he was a little bit disappointed that on a weekend where he was so quick, he had the penalty. So, uh, yeah, a, a difficult one for, for Sainz. But, yeah, you've got to say, though, a bit disappointing again for Perez, isn't it? I know this has been the story for Perez recently, but... Is this just what we've got to expect now, Mark, from, from Perez? That's that's his level. It would seem so. And I mean, Max was talking a little bit about how, how come the, the Red Bull seems faster in the last few races. And he's saying, well, we've got a lot of the weight off. And he said, not only does that give you immediate performance gain, he said, but a lot of the weight was in the wrong place. And that's why the car was understeering. Um, he said, and now it's, you know, it's, it's much more neutral in its balance and I can get more from it which you know, we talked about a lot earlier in the season and last year, in fact, comparing him to his teammates and the year before probably. Um, so, yeah, it's a faster car now, but you need to be a, a Max Verstappen to absolutely exploit the, the full potential of that. And that's all about having the delicate feel for the rotation of the car in the early part of the corner without that developing into a time-consuming slide and just having that finesse of, of, of using its um, its assets and not, uh, not 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 having those cause a, you know, a limitation. Um, and that's just something that Checo can't do. He needs to lean on the front of the car, and if he can do that, um, it's, and, and have confidence that the back's not going to step out and require him to do some snap catching of snaps. Um if he has that, he can drive that particular car very quickly, um, probably just as quickly as Max, but that's not the fastest way to have a car, um, certainly with the current cars and current tyres. And as that is developed, as the car has developed in that way, so Sergio's fallen further and further off the pace and he's not looking now, I would, I would say he's looking less convincing now than Albon was at the end of his stint there, where he, when he was making some progress. Yeah, it's another illustration, isn't it, that great drivers make great cars even greater, if you see what I mean. So you use the word great a few too many times in one sentence. In one sentence. So yeah, that's just the reality. You know, the gap, I'm sure, will ebb and flow depending on how, how the car is. But Perez is very much into that number two driver role. And the question is whether he can fulfil that to the necessary level. Well, it's now time for the latest from Grid Rival, the fancy motorsport game in which the race does have its own league. The less said about my own team, the better. It wasn't a good week. How did your strategy play out, Scott? Uh, terribly, Ed. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my score now. Um, I, I, Against my better judgment, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on my lesser places this week. So I, t- 
I took a punt. I can't believe I'm going to say these words. I signed Nicholas Latifi. Um, I thought, you know, Williams, low low drag. Um, he was quite good here last year, I think, if I'm not making that up completely. Um, I, I just thought he might do something. And I, and I couldn't get De Vries. And I was tempted to get De Vries after FP1 because I thought he was super good in FP1, uh, FP3. sorry. But um, obviously I couldn't get him because he's not a full-time driver. So I went Latifi. That didn't work. Um, I also went with Lance Stroll. That didn't work. Uh, I had Fernando Alonso. That didn't work. Um, Lando Norris didn't finish as high as he was meant to, but Max Verstappen won the race. So uh, unfortunately, I think everyone's got Max Verstappen in their team. So it was um, it was a pretty bad week. I'm not going to lie. Well, as you know, I'm very, very much focused on 2023. I'm predicting a very, very strong season like Mercedes. I'm going to have learned from my errors and be a much, much stronger force, a league-winning force, I would argue, next season. So I'm I'm plotting while you flounder. But yeah, it's, it's not been a good week for me. Holding the lead in the league is Jackie 78958103 still. Strong team with Leclerc and Verstappen leading it, albeit one let down a little bit by Fernando Alonso's retirement. Great double points talent driver pick two in Pierre Gasly. Grid Rival, of course, is still open for sign-ups and will be tracking progress over the year, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast, but you're going to have to sign up quickly if you're going to get the chance to do what both me and Scott have done this year, which is sign Nicholas Latifi for some reason. And I imagine we'll get on to the reasons why you're going to have to hurry up on Nicholas Latifi shortly. Well, Mark, let's look at the midfield battle. McLaren clawed back six points in its fight for fourth in the Constructors' Championship, thanks to Lando Norris's seventh place. It would have been even more had Daniel Ricciardo not retired from eighth place. Was I wide of the market expecting Alpine to have a clear edge over McLaren at Monza? As it turns out, you were. Um, the McLaren genuinely had a performance edge over Alpine there. But that was from an underperformance from Alpine rather than any progress by McLaren, which was actually further off the front-running pace than usual. And its second-row grid positions were flattered, of course, by all the, the grid penalties of the others. But within their group, it had the edge over Alpine. And even when Alonso took advantage of a Norris mistake and passed, Lando was able to almost immediately repass. And those two have great races, though, don't they? We, we, just as we saw at Spa, he's two, two decades apart in age, but capable of lapping a car in much the same times. Um, Alpine was puzzled by its relative lack of performance here, especially as Alonso had actually lapped faster on Friday than he managed on Saturday, despite a theoretically faster track. And the team believes this will just be an outlier, and um, they are expecting a big step from a new floor in Singapore, and they're very bullish about the prospects there. Yeah, well, the run of play largely has been with Alpine in recent times. So this was a, a rare moment for McLaren to actually close the gap back up again and really was a blow for them that they lost Ricardo because that would have made a, a big difference and maybe put them on a trajectory where they thought they, they could win this battle. Oh, I still feel like Alpine are going to win this battle for fourth, but I've been proved wrong before. Well, Scott, let's get on to one of the big talking points, which is Nick de Vries. He became the 78th driver in World Championship history to score points on debut with ninth place as a stand-in for Alex Alban, who's suffering from appendicitis. De Vries, of course, jumped in for FP3, having driven for Aston Martin FP1. So it's fair to say, as you referred to earlier, you took a fairly keen interest in his progress. In fact, this has very much been the, the Nick de Vries Grand Prix weekend for you, hasn't it? Yeah, I've loved it, honestly. Um, I, I, I really enjoy it. And 
especially when it becomes very clear early on that you're going to have a story on your hands because De Vries impressed me from his first his first push lap in, in FP3. Um, you and I were talking about this at the time, that there, there, there's a time and a place for caution and being sensible and conservative and whatnot. The the only chance you may ever have to drive on a Grand Prix weekend is not that time. When 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 you are when you're presented with the opportunity to make have a full audition effectively for for a race seat, you you have to throw everything at it. And De Vries was doing that from from the first lap in FP3. I mean, it bit him straight away. Second flying lap, he was off through the gravel between the Lesmos. Um, but without that attitude, without that approach. He wouldn't have made it into Q2. Uh, he wouldn't have been in position to inherit such a strong grid position, P8, on the grid after various penalties. And I don't think he would have put in the performance he did in the Grand Prix. Um, <clears throat> it was not a perfect weekend by any means, um, unsurprisingly with the last-minute nature of the of the call-up. He wasn't that familiar with certain processes and switch changes and switch positions on the steering wheel. But he just kept asking for advice. How do I do this? Uh, what do I need to do? Which switch do I need to be in? He, he was asking the team a lot. He was also receptive whenever he got given feedback. But I just, I love the assertiveness uh, behind the wheel, uh, the way he was driving the car, really hustling in it, throwing the throwing the car around, lots and lots of inputs on the steering wheel, really leaning on the, the rear of the car. But also with how he was dealing with the team, you, making it very clear what he wanted in terms of car setup, whether it was more or less front wing. Um, there was one moment where he demanded that for his final run in Q2, he'd just be let, he'd just be left to do the lap rather than go out and try and get the toe. He wanted to be able to do an out lap that got, that he felt would get the tires in the window. And then, and uh, honestly, the Grand Prix, that was such an impressive performance. There, there were, there were really minor blemishes in the Grand Prix. He he did end up with a black and white warning flag for track limits, but after that, he was absolutely by the book, so that wasn't a problem. He he had like t- a tiny lock-up here and there into a couple of the chicanes, and there was the moment that got him called up to the stewards after the race where he um, was accused of driving erratically because he had a bit of a long brake pedal at one point. He was dealing with that. When the safety car came out, there was a bit of confusion. The team hadn't given him the right information in terms of not paying attention to his delta anymore. So he jumped on the brakes to make sure he was below the delta time and that caught out Joe Guan Yu behind him. There, there was no problem. It, it wasn't dangerous. Joe didn't have to take like dramatic evasive action or anything like that, but he got a rap on the knuckles in the form of reprimand, but it didn't take away his ninth place. It didn't take away his points. And I'm so happy for him that that, was rewarded in the end because he was hanging on to a heroic 10th in those final laps and the Ricardo D- uh, DNF and the safety car promoted him to ninth and then secured it. That helped. It put some gloss on it, but everything else about it was, was all Nick De Vries and it was really, really impressive and probably, and this is going to sound kind of disrespectful and, and rude. I, I don't mean it this way. I don't mean it that way, but, this is the first time I've looked at De Vries and gone, you absolutely belong on the Grand Prix grid. I know he's a Formula 2 champion. I know he's a Formula E champion, but he always struck me as a driver who had flashes of potential, but had never really done enough at the right time to really stake his claim. 
Um, I think the fact that he was, you know, a third year F2 champion sort of speaks to that. That's just generally not the kind of impressive junior champion that really wins over teams. You can't hold that against him now. He had one chance this weekend. He took it. And I think it would be a massive shame if he's not on the grid full time in 23. Yeah, it's a real come of the hour weekend for him. I think, in fact, I think I said that when we heard he was going to be in the car to you, that, that this was the chance to really make it happen. You only get one shot quite often at something like this. And he was already in a reasonable position to get a drive, but this has bolstered his CV immeasurably. And that race drive in particular, basically nobody that he could have kept behind got past him is the way to look at it, in that the quick guys from the back were always going to get past. There's nothing he could do about them. And obviously that there were some strategic offsets and things that, that made that happen. But under loads of pressure from from Joe Guan Yu throughout the race and yeah, just just did the job. Very, very, very impressive. And Mark, inevitably we've got a number of questions about De Vries and the Williams driver situation. Lots in particular about what it means for Nicholas Latifi. Henri Hayler, who has very helpfully provided a phonetic pronunciation of his name, so I say it vaguely correctly, although I'll take some more feedback on that as I might need to refine it a little bit, says, should Williams drop Latifi now and replace him with De Vries for the rest of the season? Danny Danielski asks, what are the chances of De Vries replacing Latifi next year? Jay Gannon asks if we can all finally consider this the final nail in the coffin for Latifi. And Dan Booth says, at what point will he be costing Williams more than his backing brings in terms of prize money and profile and reputation? Mark, lots to tackle there, although I might say final nail in the coffin for Latifi. I think, unfortunately, in F1, he was in a very, very unlikely position to hold on to his drive. But this this is just pretty much signed and sealed it, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say in uh, answer to the quick answer to the respective three questions would be um, uh, no, good, and yes. But. Um, <laughs> Latifi's contracted for the season and uh, dropping would be unnecessarily expensive both in loss of revenue that he brings and also the uh, contract end compensation so I don't think Williams would be in the mood to do that and uh, sure De Vries would on the evidence of today bring better finishes than Latifi um, already um, let alone next year but it's it's not crucial in the big scheme of far more concern of the team is next year and yes, De Vries is very much in a frame to take Latifi's seat in 23. Um, he already was, but he obviously is more so now. Um, but that's not his only option. Um, that would be Williams's preference, but I think um, with an Alpine seat possibly available, it may not necessarily happen the way Williams would like. So it's going to be interesting to see what choices um, he makes. Um, do you go with the, the certainty of Williams or the possibility of Alpine, You know, which is... On the evidence of this this year, you'd, you'd say it would still be a, a more competitive car next year than the Williams. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think the chances of De Vries not being a full time F one driver uh, are now slim. Well, that's connected to the question from Danny Elliott, which you've partly answered there. He said that De Vries impressed me today. I think everyone was impressed with De Vries. As it was in a Williams, it was even more impressive. I know there's still a few seats unconfirmed for next season, so does he have any opportunities to be on the grid full-time in 2023? Now, Scott, Mark has just run through some of those possibilities. Would you agree that it's very, very likely he should end up on the grid next year? And and how, if you were Nick DeVries' manager, who of course is actually Nick DeVries because he manages himself, would you be playing this, given you've probably got one team that's quite motivated because you've just finished ninth for them, 
to get you and another team that might need a bit more convincing, but that is currently more competitive in Alpine. I I think he will be on the grid. I think if I, first of all, if I were Williams, I'd be I'd be throwing everything I can at him to to get him in the car. I, I think that, that I think there's no excuse not not to try and sign De Vries now if you're if you're Williams and that may already have happened. He may already have a firm offer for for next year. Um, for De Vries, really tricky. This is his only chance to get into F1. Um, he has been. He was on the periphery a few years ago. When he was uh, when he was still on, you know, coming up through the junior single seater ranks, he was again on the periphery kind of last year um, as Formula E champion and with a couple of seats on the go. I think Mercedes were trying quite hard to see if they could find him somewhere. But this is the first time I think he'll he's been in demand, and I don't think he'll be in demand again purely because he's not in Formula One. He will be forgotten about because the F1 paddock is just a ruthless, ruthless place. So it depends what offers he's got in front of him. If he if he doesn't have anything other than a firm offer from Williams, just take the Williams drive, get on the grid, prove yourself. He could be around for for, for years to come if he performs at the level he did at Monza this weekend. If if Alpine are interested, but they want to take their time and drag their heels because we know they love shilly shallying, I don't know if I don't know if that's worth it. You just end up you just end up putting things off on a on a possibility. And if he delays, does he lose everything? You know, does the Williams offer disappear because he's he wants to go and try a twenty twenty one Alpine and then wait for them to make their mind up in a month or two? I, I don't I don't know what the timeline is. For that, and I'd be really worried about that potentially ruining everything else. But ultimately, the chances are next year the Alpine will be a much more competitive car than the Williams. De Vries, it's his decision. He might turn around and say, "This is my only chance. I'm just going to go and get try and get in the absolute best car I can." So it's Alpine or bust. I'm just going to put all my eggs in that basket because if I do, I could be fighting for podiums in a couple of years. Whereas at Williams, you don't know what you're going to get. So. Be interested to see what his mindset is, but I, if I were him, I think I'd be—I think I'd be grabbing that. Uh, I'd be guiding him towards the the Williams drive personally, but I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a bit too conservative. You'd certainly be treading very carefully with Alpine, wouldn't you? We've heard a few things from Laurent Rossi this weekend, their CEO, in terms of his outlook of of how drivers should behave. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I agree with his interpretation of what loyalty is owed to your employees, et cetera, if you can't even be bothered to produce a contract. So, yeah, treat Alpine with caution, I think, would be good advice for any driver. But certainly, you can't argue that it's a more competitive proposition. So there's going to be lots more talk about Nick De Vries in the coming weeks, I assume. And it probably won't be too long before his Formula One future is settled. And, yeah, it would right now seem to be about 99% he's going to be on the grid. And all credit to him because he has absolutely seized his opportunity. It's very, very difficult to be thrown in an FP3 to a car. We can't call it an unfamiliar car because he drove it in Spain and he was available to them as a reserve driver. So he was he was kind of in the in the mindset that he could have to jump in. But to do what he did, 
I think, deserves a huge amount of credit. And it says a lot about his mentality as well. So well done, Nick DeVries. Mark, let's quickly talk about Alfa Romeo. They ended a six-race points drought with Joe Guanyu's 10th place. What's happened to Alfa Romeo after such a great start to the season? And does this return to the top 10 give any particular hope for Sauber fans? Uh, just development, really. A very unproductive development curve after a, um, after about a third of the, the way through the season, really. It's when it, when it seemed to hit a brick wall, while everybody else in the midfield has been adding performance constantly. And um, but also remember that the Alpha was very unusual in the early season in being on the weight limit. And since then, its rivals have got lighter, while it, it couldn't because it was already on the limit. Um, so, yeah, a, a little bit of that and a little bit of just, you know, they've, they've, they've hit a development brick wall. Uh, unfortunate. Um, also, reliability from uh, a lot of that has been from the Ferrari PU side, but not all of it. Um, is, is there any significant hope? That I, I don't see so. I think every, everybody's now just, I think we, we, we've probably seen, a, we, we know there's there's some more development going on onto the Alpine um, yeah, as they try to consolidate their advantage and uh, in that fourth place battle. Um so yeah, I see the others pulling further away uh, rather than them uh, them clawing anything back. To be uh, to be honest, yeah, it feels like the time when they're uh, nailed on Q three car is a long way away, and they're not going to get back to that this season, likely. Although they're at least on the periphery. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Let's finish off, as always, with a few quick-fire questions from the race members. Club Scott, the first one to you from Chris Parrott, who says, McLaren seemed to cost Norris two positions, one to Hamilton with a botched pit stop and one to Perez when they pit him under the safety car, which will be more disappointing. The car's lack of development from last year to this, or the silly mistakes like this, which cost Norris a top-five finish. If you were Lando Norris, what would disappoint you more? I, I think the the regression in terms of competitiveness, hundred percent, because every, every team every team makes errors with pit stops from time to time, and I don't think McLaren has a particularly chronic pit stop problem. 
Uh, and the the team was frustrated that they lost the place to Perez because I think they felt that had the, the race resumed, I think they, they, they fancied their chances. Whereas the lack of performance relative to last year is just, it's just there. It, it's permanent. There's nothing that, that the team can really do about it. Now there's nothing Norris can do with it. And I think this weekend kind of ran that home where McLaren were, okay, slightly fortunate, but nonetheless extremely competitive last year. And that's what, that's what underpinned their one-two finish. Whereas this year they lined up on the second row of the grid and both drivers knew they were going backwards from the very beginning. So Norris felt he put in one of his best drives of the season and perhaps one of his best drives in Formula One today in terms of how measured it was, biding his time, managing the tyres and everything. And last year that would have been rewarded with a podium. This this year it's minor points positions and they're going to get beaten by Alpine in the championship. Yeah, that's going to definitely happen at the rate they're going. Next question, Marcus, from Oscar Robledo, who says, are there any races left that Max won't win? And apparently Checo in Mexico doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, they're so far ahead in the championship, actually, and the Red Bull is traditionally so good in Mexico. They might be able to give Perez and, the, and his fans there that special present. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. <laughs> but on performance... Um, I think Ferrari's best chance of a win in the remaining race is probably Singapore. Low speed downforce, no big deal about aero efficiency, but ride height higher than normal because of the bumps, so maybe Max even dominates there. Brazil, mm, Ferrari got half a chance, I guess, but basically Max is favourite everywhere now. The car's got quicker as they've pulled the weight off it at just the time that Ferrari's got itself into some tyre usage problems, so you just sort of double whammy, really. Yeah, I be very interested to see what happens if Red Bull do go into Mexico trying to engineer a win for Perez. It could be quite the challenge, couldn't it? It could be quite an interesting race if they do that, because obviously Checo would need to make sure he's second best, which has been a bit of a challenge recently. So yeah, that, that could make it make it quite interesting. But yeah, it, you could see Verstappen racking up incredible numbers. He's already got 31 wins and he's having a sensational season he's got 11 wins for the year now and yeah as Scott has been saying for some time the wins record in a year could well fall he's he's only one win he's only one win from Alonso now isn't he in the all-time list how how ridiculous is that no, it's, it, it's amazing. He's he's racking up serious numbers. And, and you start looking at the rate he's doing it, and you, you're thinking, well, actually, getting up towards those Hamilton numbers down the line doesn't seem quite so fanciful. It's going to take a long time to get there, but it's just showing the quality of, of driver that, that he is. The next question comes from Ollie Wright. Scott, a slightly off-topic question, so I understand if you don't include it, but I thought it was worth asking. Well, I can say it was definitely worth asking, and we have included it. Given the recent talk of being a bit flexible about Colton Herter's super license points, I'm wondering how much of a long shot it would be to see Jamie Chadwick in F1. She's head and shoulders the best current female driver and her appearing in F1 would be huge for the sport's appeal. Is it total fantasy to imagine it happening? It's not total fantasy as long as Jamie, you know, performs at a higher level than she's been been racing in for the last two or three years. That, that, that's, I'm not meaning that in a disrespectful way, it's just an honest way. You know, the level that W Series is at is it's below sort of Formula Regional level. So it's somewhere between F4 and Formula Regional, really. The highest profile championship Jamie has raced in is from what is the predecessor for, for the Formula Regional by Alpine Series. Um, 
that was a pretty weak grid. That it was a very low populated grid, and she she was pretty poor in that in a crack team like Prima. So she's got the super license points, I believe. Um, maybe she needs more. I can't. W Series works weirdly because you, you. I don't think the champion can get points uh, when they come back. So maybe she doesn't. Um, but the point is, I think she needs to do something like F3 or F2 and succeed there before she gets to Formula 1 because it would be great publicity for F1 up until she does the race weekend, at which point I fear that she would be quite out of her depth. Not because she's a woman at all, but because I think if you put any driver from the level of championship that she normally races in, in a Formula 1 car, they're not going to do a Nick De Vries job. So... I, I yeah I it's possible but it's three or four years away if it's ever going to happen and it needs her to to step up into a bigger series and do she doesn't have to dominate every championship she does obviously but she needs to prove that she can race for wins and podiums in F3 and F2 before she can get near F1 it would be nice to see Williams giving her a proper test that would be nice to see I think that that would be the the, the next step for them to take and the final question for you, Mark, comes from Mathis Martin, who says, Matteo Bonotto often says that because of the new cost cap, Ferrari can't match the relentless pace of upgrades that Red Bull and other teams seem to have this season. But with all the top teams now spending the same amount of money, can we say that Ferrari is a less efficiently run team than Red Bull and Mercedes? Or is it just a trick to get the FIA to look closer at the spending of other teams? What, what do you make of that? Has Bonotto been talking about that a great deal? He's mentioned it from time to time, saying, you know, that um, he's just sort of putting up a warning sign saying, look, I, I can't believe that uh, the, 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 their development is um, significantly cheaper than ours, and I know how much these parts cost us, so I'm not quite understanding how they're able to um, put so many new parts on the car and still be within cost cap because we're struggling to do it. Um, could just be that Red Bull is uh, more financially efficient, but... I think it's more likely that it's just competitive paranoia. It's always there, um, and teams will always believe that others are pulling stunts when there's um, the leeway, let's put it, in their regulations um, to do so, which in turn often leads them to pull stunts. And rather than do that, I think Bernardo's comments are just a sort of fishing exercise to get the FIA to take a look and and, and ensure that that isn't um, what is happening. Well, that's always the kind of thing that's going on in Formula One in the background, isn't it? There's always concerns. Competitive paranoia is a very good way of looking at it. And funnily enough, when Ferrari showed well in qualifying, Red Bull were wondering, well, maybe they've, they've had a bit more development time, so they've had a bit more time that they can invest in producing proper parts for Monza and that kind of thing. So somebody else's grass is always greener when it comes to the battle between teams in Formula One. Well, thanks to Scott and Mark for joining us throughout F1's triple header. TheRace.com, and don't forget the hyphen if you're heading there. We'll have loads more to read on events at Monza and the latest news in F1, so head there for more. And we now have an app, and the easiest way to find it is to search for the race media. The Grand Prix Circus has got a couple of weeks off now, but we aren't going anywhere, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.